Over the years, I have purchased many things that come with a limited guarantee, and at times I've had to use that guarantee to either repair or replace or refund it. I've also bought some things with a longer guarantee, uh, and I paid one time for something a greater expense because it came with a 10-year guarantee. I learned a lesson the hard way, that if you buy a 10-year guarantee on a product from a business that's only been in existence for two years, there's a high probability that in the eighth year when you need to use that guarantee, it will no longer be in business. And that guarantee is then worthless. A guarantee is only as valuable and usable and as reliable as the guarantor. The one who makes the guarantee, the one who has the authority, the one who has the power, the one who has the means, and the one who has the integrity to keep his word about the guarantee. When you read a legal guarantee contract, you will find within it this covenant language, which was intriguing to me. I'm not a lawyer, never played one on TV, never stayed in the Holiday Inn, but I did kind of get a rabbit trail here a little bit about contracts. I thought it was interesting, this covenant language. Certain covenants within a legal guarantee, I think that will help us relate to what God has done for us today. There's the covenant of possession. This is where the one who owns the guarantee, the guarantor, the one who owns this, says he also has the authority to make this yours, to give you that possession. There is the covenant of encumbrances. And this is where the guarantor, the one who makes the guarantee, says that what he's given you is free of any encumbrances, that it's no debt to it, it's free and clear. There is the covenant of quiet enjoyment. This is where you're told the security that you have is that no third party can come in and take it from you legally. It is yours. There's the covenant of assurance that the, the guarantor will assure you that they will do all the legal steps necessary and provide all the legal documents that are needed in order to make sure that this transaction is secure. Now, I thought that was interesting. There's a lot more about that. But I want to talk to you today about the guarantee that God gives his children. As a Christian, you know that what God guarantees, what he promises, he's always true with, right? He has the authority. He has the means. He has his word that's going to back it up. So I want to point to you today at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 through 14, the latter part of 13 and 14. And I want to see how God has made this legal guarantee with us. And see those covenants within this, if you will, as I read this to you. How God has designed this for his children. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Aren't you glad God made that guarantee with you as his child? The longest sentence in the Bible is found here. In fact, these verses are the conclusion to that longest sentence in the Bible. The sentence starts in verse 3 in the original and ends in what we call verse 14. It is one long sentence. Thankfully, our English translators have broken it up into about eight different sentences to help us understand it better. 
It's not the only time that Paul will have a running sentence that will go very long. But this is the longest sentence in the Bible. Now, I love, don't you, when kids get really excited about something. When my kids and now my grandkids get really excited about something, they start to talk about it, don't they? And they start the conversation, and they keep talking, and they keep talking, and the sentence gets longer and longer and longer and more excitable as it goes, to finally the only way it stops is that they run out of breath. Right? How many of you have? <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. A long-running sentence, whether by a kid or by an adult, usually indicates excitement and passion about that particular subject. But also we know with a long sentence, even if it's grammatically and structured correctly, it has twists and turns. It can be very complex. And you have very a, a hard time following what the point of that sentence is. Paul, with every reason, is excited and passionate about talking about our inheritance that we have, that God guarantees us. However, in his excitement, he creates this long sentence that's equivalent to eight of our modern English sentences today. That's how excited he is. So, so listen as I read this to you. But I want you to think about it as being one long sentence. And obviously, if it's one long sentence, that means that everything that's in verse 3 through 14 are all related. And why Paul is so excited and why we should be too about this guarantee as God's adopted sons of this inheritance that he has given us and redemption through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his good pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Aren't you thankful for modern translators? One long sentence broken up into about eight sentences here. It says a whole lot. So I want to begin with a summary of what Paul is saying. And then let's get into the guaranteed itself, okay? So before God created anyone or anything, he designed a plan 
that he would predestine certain humans to be part of his eternal holy family. They would be his adopted sons they would, or children. They would not have to wait until they reached heaven to enjoy the benefits of being in God's family. But they would have access to all the spiritual blessings in heaven here on earth. It's like a down payment that guaranteed the hope that they had put in Christ, through Christ, that they would have this promised inheritance as the adopted chosen children of God. It's guaranteed. Now, in order for his chosen adopted children to be able to live in the presence of the eternal God, they had to be holy and blameless, and that's a problem. God knew that as humans lived here upon this earth, they would be marred and ruined by sin. They would lose their holiness, and they would no longer be blameless. So God would have to initiate it. God would have to purpose it, find some way in which he could take those people that he wanted to be his children and his family and declare them to be holy and blameless. So according to what pleased him and what was according to his will, he chose to accomplish this through the one that he loved, his son, Jesus Christ. So he predestined a plan that unfolded through history that prophesied that his son that he loved, the chosen Messiah, would arrive here upon this earth and that chosen one whom he loved, according to the predestined plan of God, would offer himself as a sacrifice for redemption and forgiveness to those who would choose to put their faith in the chosen one. And those who would choose to put their faith in the chosen one, God would choose them to be put into his family, adopted children of God. And when he did that, here's what he could do. He could take the righteousness and the holiness and the blamelessness of Christ and put it upon those who had received Christ in faith and now declare them to be holy and blameless because what Christ has done for them. When we go to heaven as God's adopted children, we not only receive the full inheritance, but we have the redemption and get the new brand new body that God gives us that is perfect and holy without fault or blemish. Now that gift that God gives us of salvation, of making us his adopted children with full inheritance rights, causes us to give praise to him, to his glory, and praise for his wonderful grace that he's poured out upon us. Amen? Now I had to say that in more than eight sentences. But that gives you an idea of everything that's covered in verse 1 through 14. Now, let's talk about a contract or a guarantee. A guarantee is limited to those who are covered by it. That's the first point I want to make. So who is covered? What is covered in this contract? Well, we find that it's those who believe. This guarantee is not for everyone. If you're not a believer in Christ, what I'm saying to you does not apply to you at all. You are not in this covenant relationship. It's to those who believe, who've been redeemed, that God gives us guarantee. Paul will call them the holy ones of God, the faithful ones of God, the children of God. He'll say those are the ones who believe in the message of the truth that teaches about the salvation of God. These are the redeemed, the forgiven. This guarantee that God gives here is only for those, only for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ.
That's the limit that's there to those who are covered. The guarantee, secondly, is only as strong as the guarantor. So here it is. God guarantees that he'll do this for us. He promises this to us by his authority, his means, and his word. I used to know this man in Fayetteville, Tennessee. He was a friend of mine until he passed away. And he had two statements he always made that I always will remember and associate with him. The first statement was what he called every single guy he ever met. Whether it was a young kid, teenager, college age, young adult, middle age, or older person. Every guy was called by him, hey bud. Every guy was, hey bud. And not only he didn't know your name and never tried to bother to learn your name. It was just so much easier for him to say, any guy was called bud. Hey bud. And you could also tell by the way he said, hey, bud, what he wanted. Hey, bud, meant he's just saying hi. Hey, bud, meant he had a question he wanted to answer. When he said, hey, bud, and wanted to be emphatic, then I knew. Then I knew he wanted to say something. And it would be followed by the next statement. The next statement was this. Hey, bud, I guarantee you this. And then he proceeded to guarantee you what he was telling you was the truth. And then he would conclude by saying, yes, sir. This is, I guarantee, this is an ironclad, flat-out guarantee. This is the gospel truth. Anyone ever have a person? <laughs> he was like that. I can still hear him saying that. And I mean, he was so emphatic. So, so let me say to you this morning about this guarantee from God. All right? This guarantee from God is unshakable, unmovable, unbreakable, firm, solid guarantee. Yes, sir, I guarantee you it's ironclad. It's the gospel truth. God guarantees it. So the question is, why would he do this? Why would he guarantee this to us? Why would he do this? Well, it tells you in verse 6 and 12 and 14, he does it so that we will praise him and glorify him for our salvation. And that he does this because he wants us, those who believe in Christ, who've been chosen by God through Christ, to praise him and give him thanks for the glorious grace that he's shown us. What he has done is in accordance with what pleases him, and it's according to his will, and he desires for any person, anywhere, anytime, at any place in this world, to put their faith in Christ so if they can be saved and have the hope and be added to his family as an adopted child in order to receive this full inheritance. And those that do that will praise him for his glory and praise him for his wonderful, glorious grace. Now, I think it's important that we know when he made this guarantee. When he made this guarantee was before he created anyone or anything. Before he created anything, before the first Adam, before the first human was on this planet, before anything was created for the Adam and Eves to be on this planet, God, first of all, created the guarantee. And he said, this is what I'm going to do for those who put their faith in my chosen son whom I love. So that's when. What does he guarantee? Did you hear it when I was reading it to you? 
Did you hear everything he guarantees you? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms? To be declared holy and blameless? To be called the children of God? To be redeemed? To be forgiven? To be able to have the wisdom and understanding of God's purpose and plan and his promise here of this inheritance? To know and understand that when Christ returns to bring unity to everything at the end of time, that we will be under his lordship and that we'll be eternally in heaven with God? What do we have? We have the blessing that we know that we'll be conformed to his will, that our hope is in Christ, that the message that we preach is a message of truth, that we are his possession and that we are his hope. Isn't that wonderful? That's the guarantee of what God gives you as a child of God. If you are feeling down at all today, man, you should be feeling lifted up right now. That's what he's given you. So when does this go into full effect? Right now, we have some of it, don't we? But if you notice in verse 10 and verse 14, all of this, this full inheritance, comes when Christ returns. Now, I've said this many, many times before. People think of history as a circle. They keep circling back. We keep repeating the same things. And in a way that's true because that's what sin does. Sin is not inventive. Sin just repeats the same old nature because we all have the same human nature. But make no mistake about it. History is not going to stay in a circle. History is a linear, going to point straight to the time when Jesus returns. And every time, everything, every event... Anything in this earth will be fulfilled in the time that Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, under him, his lordship, everything will be brought to unity and completion and we'll receive that full inheritance. That's who God is. That's what he does for us. How does he do this? How does he give us this full inheritance? How does he guarantee it? Well, seven times we're told that this is in Christ. One time we're told that it's through Christ, and another time it says that it's under Christ. Nine times in these verses, Jesus is mentioned as the means as to how God brings us about. Listen, we're given every spiritual blessing guaranteed, how? In Christ. We're the adopted, chosen people of God, children of God, how? In Christ. We are redeemed through Christ. We are forgiven through Christ. We have wisdom and understanding through and by Christ. We have a time in heaven to live with God eternally under the rulership and the lordship of Jesus Christ. My will is shaped to the will of God in Christ Jesus. I believe in the gospel. It's the truth because it's about my Christ. I have hope because I have Christ. I am the possession of God because I've been redeemed by Christ. Everything, everything that God guarantees you is only through Jesus Christ. And that's why it's absolutely impossible for any person on this planet to ever be saved except through Jesus Christ. Because no one else can do that. No one comes close. That's the guarantee we have. In Christ, God adopted us and saved us and sealed us for the inheritance in heaven. And God has those means to save us. We don't. We don't even come close. So what can we do? We have to praise God for his glorious grace, the richness of his grace, and the generosity of his grace. Amen? That's what we're led to. Praise to his glory. It reminds me of the parable 
that Jesus told about an owner of a vineyard. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 20. Maybe you know this story. This owner needed some workers in his vineyard. So early that morning, the start of the day, he went and hired these workers to work in his field for the day, and he would pay them a full day's wage. Nine o'clock in the morning, he realizes he needs more workers. He goes out and hires those workers and says, I will pay you, guarantee you, a right price. At noon that day, he needs more workers in his vineyard, so he goes out and hires more and tells them, I guarantee you that I'll do right by you in my payment to you. Three o'clock in the afternoon, when it's almost over with the day, he goes out and hires more workers in his vineyard and says, I will pay you, guarantee you what is right. One hour before closing, he goes out and hires more workers and tells them, I will be right towards you, I guarantee you. One hour later, when everything closes up, the owner lines up the workers. The last workers line up first, and the very first early workers line up last. And to the last workers who worked one hour, he gave them a full day's wage. The ones who started working at 3 o'clock in the afternoon showed up, full day's wage. The ones who started working at noon, they show up, full day's wage. Those who started at 9 o'clock in the morning, full day's wage. When he got to the ones who had worked the very first workers all day long, he gave them a full day's wage. Now the first workers who saw what the last workers had received, that the first workers saw what the last workers had received the same amount that they had, began to grumble and complain against the owner. It's not fair. I mean, we worked all day long. We earned ours. Those people, the last workers, worked one hour, got the same amount we had. That's not fair. And the owner said, wait a minute. Didn't I guarantee if you work for me for a full day, I'd give you a full day's wage? I did. I honored what I told you. I'm the owner of this vineyard. I can hire who I want to when I want to hire them and pay them what I want to pay them. It's none of your business. He says, do not be envious of my generosity. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Now, I think every one of us, most of us, have a problem with this parable. We have a problem with this parable. Because instinctively, but yet incorrectly, every one of us identify ourselves as the guy who worked all day long, or at least started at 9 o'clock. So we see this, and we hear that we're supposed to think that our employer is generous. If I've worked a full day, and a person comes in and works for one hour, and he gets the same amount that I get, that, that we, there's no way I'm thinking that, are you? I'm not thinking, oh man, I'm so glad my employer is so generous that he would give that person who worked one hour the same amount I got. We're not thinking that. We're thinking about forming a union and filing a protest, aren't we? <laughs> We're going to go on strike. We're going to fix this. And we hear this and we ponder and think, what in the world? Don't be envious. But remember, a parable is not an allegory. Not every single point in a parable is to be allegorized. A point, a parable makes one point. And the point in this parable is God is generous. And those who are the last of the workers understand and love his generosity. 
You see, if you consider yourself in that parable to be either the one that started full day's work, 9 o'clock, noon, or even 3, you're envious, you're angry at why that last worker received so much or the same amount that you did. But what the parable intends for us to see is that there's not a single one of us in this room today that are a full day worker, 9 o'clock worker, noon worker, 3 o'clock worker. Every one of us are the last worker in this parable. And when you see yourself as the last worker, you think, my God is so generous. You're not envious of others. You're not angry at God for not treating you fairly. You're not grumbling and complaining about how life is unfair. No, you realize that you never had the means. You never had the opportunity or the resources to ever be able to save yourself. But God, out of the richness of his glorious grace, was so generous to you, so generous to you, that he gave you exactly what you needed and not what you deserved. Amen? And that's what God has done for us. How generous is this God? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Here's how generous he is. Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. You are following the ways of this world. You are under the rulership of the evil one. Your lust, your desires, your cravings you are submitting to. You deserve to be under the wrath of God. But out of his great love for us, out of his great mercy for us, he saved us and raised us to be seated with Christ at his right hand. And through, God, through, through Christ, he has shown us incredible kindness. None of us have these riches. None of us could do this for ourselves. But God, out of his great love and mercy for us, who's rich in mercy, gave us what we can never have for ourselves. And that's why Paul says, for it's by grace you've been saved by faith. It is not your own doing, lest you might brag about it and talk about how you've earned your own salvation. This is a gift from God. Now, what else about this guarantee? Did you notice that it's sealed? This guarantee is sealed. In biblical times, a seal meant something was authentic. It meant ownership. It meant approval. It meant protection. And you can look all four of those identities about a seal and see what it means to be sealed by God. We are marked by God, sealed by this promise of the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our full inheritance. Now, this seal of the Holy Spirit is not visible to us physically. But in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual world, everyone sees this seal upon God's children. That mark is evident you are sealed by the Spirit of God. And in the spiritual realm, they know you are sealed by God. You have an authentic faith. You are His possession. You are approved by Him. You are His representative. And you are protected by God. See it? That's in the spiritual realm. And this is what is going on here. It's not a visible seal here, but you have this guarantee from God as a down payment, the seal, that you will receive the full inheritance in heaven. Now, it's interesting, Paul talks about the seal in the letter to the Ephesians and the Corinthians. Why just those two cities? In those two cities, they had lumber industry. And in the lumber industry, as the logs would float down the Black Sea into that city like Ephesus, the merchants would stand along the side and say, I'll take those logs or I'll take that bunch there. And then they would go over and they would do two things. First of all, 
they would make a wedge in the logs that identified, sealed them as belonging to that merchant. And the second thing they would do is they would put down a down payment to hold those logs. So when they were fully delivered or ready to be taken by the merchant, he would then pay the rest of it in full. This is the idea, the concept that Paul has behind here. God, who's rich in mercy, he's marked us. He sealed us. That's the guarantee. And that one day, that will no longer be a down payment, but we receive the full inheritance. Right now, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the gifts of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, the intercession of the Spirit that dwells in us. But man, this is just a down payment of what's going to happen for us in heaven. Amen? And this is what God says to us. I give you that seal, that deposit, that, that promise of the Holy Spirit. It's guaranteed. And notice what we have in Ephesians 1.14. We have this full redemption of our bodies. We have been delivered from the penalty of sin. We've been delivered from the power of sin. That's what God guarantees us. And he guarantees us in the future that we will live with him holy and blameless and free from the presence of sin in this new body that he has given us. And this is all for God's glory, right? It's not your glory, not my glory. God gets all the glory because he's the one who has provided this glorious grace and this golden opportunity for all of us to be his adopted children. Now, let's look at the term adoption for a moment, okay? Adoption is different somewhat than what it is today in biblical times. It tells us in Ephesians 1 that God has adopted us as his chosen children. And so we are adopted now. The process has started. But that adoption means that when it's finalized in heaven, when we receive our full inheritance. So we are adopted. We're in the process now. We are adopted, but it won't be fully complete until we get to heaven with that full inheritance. That's what Paul meant in Romans 8 verse 23. He says, we eagerly await our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We already know we're adopted by God into his family. Can't wait to get to heaven, see, and see that guarantee totally play out in the redemption of our bodies. Galatians 4 verse 7. It's interesting that in the Roman world, you could have many children, but in order for that child to inherit, you had to go through the legal process of adoption. You chose which children would receive the adoption contract, and the ones who were adopted then received the inheritance. The father could go outside the family. If he didn't like his children, he liked someone else's child, he could make that person his adopted child and make him the heir of everything. Some of the Roman Caesars did that, and others as well. So the father had the opportunity to adopt anyone into his family. By adoption, you're then given the full inheritance rights. And this is what Paul means in Galatians when he says, look, you're no longer a slave, but you're a child. A, a father in the Roman world could take a slave, make him a child, make them adoption, adopted child, and therefore an heir. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And as a son, God has made you an heir. An heer. Isn't that wonderful? That's, isn't that wonderful? Well, I hope you've enjoyed this lesson today. I hope it's brought a lot out to you. But I can tell you this about this guarantee from God. It's flat out, ironclad, guaranteed, right? This is the gospel truth. And I hope you will believe it and stay on it and never lose sight of that. That God has put you into his kingdom if you put your life in his son, Jesus Christ, your faith in him. This morning, 
as we're about to sing an invitation, if you're at home, uh, please write to the email address on the screen. We'll help you any way we can. If you're a home and a member, please contact the shepherd group leader. If you have any spiritual need as well, they'll be glad to get back with you as well. If you're here this morning, you'd like to respond. Please get with one of the elders after services, or you can make your way to the front right now and meet with Larry as together we stand and sing.